Hello again. Welcome to Strange Old World, the podcast where we bring out the bizarre sides of world-famous cities. I'm Joe, and every fortnight I talk to a local expert in a different old world city and ask for their tips for unusual things to see and do. In this episode, we are talking about Florence. The capital of Tuscany and one-time capital of Italy was founded by Romans in the 1st century BCE. So Florence is clearly old, but what makes it strange? To get to the bottom of that, I spoke to local travel journalist Nikki Swallow. As you'll hear, Nikki has written for loads of big travel publications, including Time Out, Afar and Condé Nast Traveller, and she's also the author of a lavish coffee table book, Cala de Volpe. You'll find links to all this stuff in the podcast description. Heads up, the audio quality on the interview is a bit up and down, as Nikki had to switch devices a couple of times, but all the good stuff made it in. With that said, let's get into the episode. Expect all kinds of odd Florentine activities, from watching a violent medieval football match to scoffing a boiled cow's stomach. All Nikki's suggestions are on our website, strangeoldworld.com, and stay to the end for my favourite strange site in Florence. Off we go! So, welcome to the podcast, Nikki Swallow, a travel journalist, editor and author based in Florence, Italy. Uh, we'll talk about your work in a moment, but first, can you shed some light on how you ended up in Italy? You were born in London, but raised in Belfast, is that right? Exactly. I was born in London, uh, raised in Belfast because my parents moved there when I was six. So I, I moved there. We moved there in 1964 before the trouble started mm-hmm. and they decided to stay on, uh, you know, when all that happened. So I grew up with that as a background. Um, and I'm actually a, a musician, a professional musician by training. And I did a degree in music uh, and then spent a year training as an orchestral musician. And Florence was my first orchestral job. So I came here in 1981 to play the viola in the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino Orchestra. And that's how I ended up in Florence. It was supposed to be a three-month contract. And then it got extended and extended. By the time um, it was terminated, I was already here and immersed and had a boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So decided to stay on. Yeah. So you worked in a classical violist. Is violist the right yeah, term? Yeah, violist. I was a violist. And then I gave it all up about 20 years ago. Well, 15 years ago, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then how did you segue into journalism, travel writing? I'd always enjoyed writing. My cousin published a hotel guide in London called the Charming Small Hotel Guides mm-hmm. series. It's what it was about, boutique hotels in the days before internet. And I started doing hotel inspections for her and writing notes about hotels. Mm -hmm. I was just beginning to wind down my playing career. I decided it was too stressful and I didn't want to go on with it. And uh, she contacted me and said, oh, we're doing these these new hotel guides and we've got an Italian edition. And would you be interested in going to stay at some hotels and taking notes? And, uh, you know, then we'll write the reviews from your notes. And I thought, great free hotel stays who would not want to do that (laughs) so that's what I started doing writing notes for hotel reviews they would turn them in then into proper reviews and at a certain point she said well actually you know your notes are very um, eloquent and detailed and why don't you try writing a review so that's how it started writing reviews for the charming small hotel guides 
So after you were writing the hotel reviews, yeah. you moved on to working for Time Out. Was that the next gig? Yeah, Time Out. So Time Out somehow heard about my hotel reviews and contacted me. And uh, they, at that point, were producing their very first guide to Florence. And so I became a fact checker for them. I mean, it was a huge job going through every single fact there was. And of course, there was no, it was all in print then. So there was no way of changing anything. So it had to be very carefully done. And I become a fact checker for Time Out, the first Florence uh, Time Out guide, and also wrote hotels and restaurant reviews for them. So that's basically how it started. And then Condé Nast Traveller got in touch with me because they were looking for somebody locally to do their content. You know, they had a time when they produced content from various cities in the world, and Florence was one of them. And then for Time Out, I went on working for them on and off for various guides, Rome, Turin, Florence. And then I ended up actually editing the very last of the Time Out city guides, the books, which was to Naples. And Naples is one of my places of expertise. Naples near Malfi Coast, I, I write a lot about that area. So I ended up working on their first guide to Florence and then editing their very last ever guide. So as well as writing for these hotel guides and for Time Out, uh, you've also written for The Guardian, Travel and Leisure, The Telegraph, uh, Condé Nast, you mentioned. And you also recently released the coffee table book, Cala de Volpe, am I saying that right? Yes, Cala di Volpe. Cala yes. di Volpe, okay. So can you tell me a bit about that? Well, Cala di Volpe is um, a legendary hotel that was opened in the 1960s on the Costa Smeralda in Sardinia. And it's one of those sort of hotels where everybody everybody has been. Mm -hmm. uh, Diana and Dodi had lunch there before they flew back to Paris before that dreadful, fateful night in the Alma Tunnel. I've just been watching that in, on The Crown. I've just, just got to that episode. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I was wondering whether we were going to have the, the Cala di Volpe Hotel in it, but they didn't. Um, but it's the sort of place where everybody's been through the doors, everybody. But it's actually, it's very discreet. It's very luxurious, extremely expensive, but quite low-key and away in its approach. Anyway, they celebrated 60 years in 2023, and uh, they commissioned uh, through Asseline Publishers, which publishes these very fancy coffee table books. They commissioned a book about their history, and they contacted me through Instagram and asked me to do it. So I did. Yeah. Fantastic. And it's a big, you know, luxurious silk covered coffee table thing. Yeah. Where can people get it? Well, you can get it on Amazon, but then there's the Asseline books, bookshops in, there's one in New York, there's one I think in Chelsea in London, there's one in Paris, uh, they're New York based. Yeah. But I got to go and stay there for five days. An espresso coffee there at the bar cost 20 euros. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. been a few years since I was in Italy, but it used to be kind of standard one euro at the train station. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's one euro twenty now to your uh, average bar standing at the counter. Yeah, yeah. So wow, amazing. Oh, I also read that you run a music festival in uh, Val d'Orcia. Is that right? I do in Val d'Orcia, which is southeast of Siena, so in southern, southwest, southeastern Tuscany. Beautiful, beautiful area, and I've run a music festival there for over twenty years. It's called the Incontri in Terra di Siena, and that's my sort of outlet for my musical life. It's classical chamber music, mostly classical. Every now and then we've had a jazz concert, but basically classical. 
music and musicians come from all over the world. It's a wonderful, anybody who's interested in classical music, it's one of the very best chamber music festivals in Italy. Beautiful place, fabulous musicians. So great, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, when does that happen? End of July. Uh, This year it's the 19th to the 27th of July. Okay, great. One for the diary. Yes. So you've lived in and around Florence for the last 43 years, we, we figured out. Yes, yes. So uh, what is it you love about the city? Why is it such an amazing place to, to live, but also to visit? I mean, one of the great advantages of Florence as a, especially a long weekend destination, you know, a short break city destination, is that it's really very small and you can uh, get around on foot very easily. The concentration of important art in this city is just extraordinary. They say UNESCO reckons that... That 60% of the world's greatest artworks are in Italy, mm-hmm. and 50% of those are in Florence. So wow. 30% of the world's great artworks are in this tiny city, basically. And uh, it's very easy to get around on foot. You can explore everything. The trouble is there's so much to see, so you have to be careful about choosing and, and overdoing it. And these days, Florence has become really a much more cosmopolitan city than it was when I arrived. It was a bit provincial, and it was a bit like a fusty old museum city, and there wasn't a lot else to do outside art. But now there's a real, you know, really interesting mix of great eating and drinking scene, uh, wonderful shopping, great hotels. And it's also very close to the country. So you can come to Florence and have a city break. And within half an hour, you can be out, uh, you know, in the hills and be wine tasting and olive oil tasting and country restaurants and so on. So it's a great all round small city. Okay, let's discover some strange stuff. I'm going to ask for your tips for bizarre things to enjoy in the Tuscan capital. Can you please start me off with a strange thing to see in Florence? Well, for this, I thought there were were various contenders, but one of the strangest things I've ever seen here is actually just around the corner from where I live, um, and it's a museum called La Specola, which is a natural history museum which is now part of the University of Florence, and it was founded in 1557. It's the oldest science museum in Europe. It's famous because it houses a large collection of anatomical waxes, which weren't actually made for scientific research purposes. They were commissioned from artists of the time so that people could understand, that the the public could come and see them and understand what we have in our bodies. And they are brilliant things because, I mean, they're really gory, extremely lifelike. They date from the 18th century. A lot of them were commissioned by a Neapolitan, uh, a famous Neapolitan sculptor of waxes called Clemente Susini. And they are laid out on cushions in this section of the museum, sort of which is hidden away in the back. They're not immediately obvious. You actually have to go into a special room where all these waxes are. And they're extraordinary. There's just dozens of them in cases, huge uh, life-like cadavers with their veins and bones and then various bits of anatomy, uteruses with unborn babies in them. The only thing is that the museum has actually been shut for the last two years for restoration and it's due to open next month. So I was hoping to go and to be able to see it because I haven't been there for a while to see what 
had happened to the layout because I suspect that they're going to have modernized the museum. They won't have changed the waxes in any way, but they will probably be displayed in a more contemporary setting, I think. Uh, but it's a fascinating place. And then there's, there's also three million taxidermied animals in there. Three million. <laughs> Anything from tiny field mice and beetles to, to dinosaurs. So it's a brilliant place to go, and I'll be really interested to see now how it's turned out after its modernization. But it's the collection of anatomical waxworks that are really uh, interesting. Most people just don't know they're there. So it's a fun thing to do, just something a bit different. Mm -hmm. Parents tell me that I don't have kids, but parents tell me that they take their children there and they're actually horrified by them. So I think they were hidden away in the back for a reason not to frighten everybody, you know. So first of all, you go and see the little field mice and the badgers and the foxes and the little birds, and then you get, you know, to the gory bit at the back by choice if you want to, you know. Aha. I was actually, last summer, I was at a medical museum in Budapest. Oh, yeah. There was a school group going round, and they had exactly this, this waxwork anatomical oh, thing. Oh, right. Someone with just like an open chest and torso with intestines spilling out and stuff. Yeah. And one of the kids uh, ran off to be sick in the bin oh, really? <laughs> so that was fun and that was one that was just one waxwork it was just one waxwork yeah. <laughs> oh dear so i can imagine yeah that, i mean that sounds like a fun activity in itself just Absolutely. hang around and watch yeah. watch kids being horrified being sick, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so next up how about a strange thing to do in florence an unusual thing to do, kind of a special thing to do, strange in that way, is um, walk up to the 11th century church of San Miniato, which overlooks the city from the south bank of the Arno. It dominates the city, and it's actually got a, a sort of golden Byzantine mosaic above the door, so you often see it glowing in the in the sunset. Um, so you can walk up there for fantastic views over the city, especially at sunset, and, and everybody goes up to Piazzale Michelangelo for their sunset, a city views, but it's incredibly crowded and full of tour groups, which San Miniato is not from the forecourt. Um, and there's a, an interesting story about San Miniato was a martyr, 11th century martyr, who was decapitated and it's said that he walked up the hill from the Arno, the river at the bottom, with his head under his arm and then died once he got to the top and is buried up there. That's that's the, the legend that goes with it. <laughs> how, how long does the walk take? Oh, probably about 20 minutes. If you've got your head under your arm, maybe a bit longer. <laughs> the world record is a chicken, I think. I'm wondering if it beats it, living without a head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Headless chicken, headless saints. Anyway, it's a very beautiful church with a typically green and white marble facade and lots of sort of decorations and lovely portico over the door and there's this mosaic. And there was a there was a church there in the fourth century, so it's very, very ancient indeed. And inside it's got beautiful eleventh century frescoes and an absolutely gorgeous uh, marble uh, intarsia floor with mosaics in the nave, which signs of the zodiac, and there's an eleventh century crypt. And the interesting thing about the church is it's still got a resident community of monks who live there and work there. Mm -hmm. And every evening at 6.30, uh, it changes in the winter, but it's usually 6.30, they sing mass. They sing the Vespers in Gregorian chant. 
So you can go up there and it's already an incredibly atmospheric place. And then you get this wonderful, wonderful plain chant coming from the choir, these elderly monks, because most of them are very, very old. Mm -hmm. And it's quite an experience, quite an experience. So you go up there, you look at the sunset, uh, you know, you go and hear the Gregorian chant. The brothers still make herbal lotions and potions, which you can buy at their um, apothecary shop. And they make jams and biscuits and cakes. So you can buy all that stuff to take home. And then you can see, you know, the whole of the city laid out before you from from a hillside in the south, which is, you know, a very special thing to do. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So the yeah. Gregorian chant, that's part of a service and that's open to the public, is it? It is open to the public. They sing at various times of the day and it does change. So you can look on the website just to check. But at the moment, I, uh, I believe it's at 6.30 in the evening and it's the it's the Vespers service. And yes, it's open to the public. And obviously, obviously, if you're attending a, a church service, uh, they also uh, sing Gregorian chant during the normal church service. So you can go up there and, and sit through mass and you will hear the chanting at the appropriate moments in the mass yeah okay so next up how about a strange festival or event or tradition in florence one of the strangest things that they do here is the culture in costume football game uh-huh. so it's culture in costume which is football in costume or culture historical historical football I mean, it's quite well known, but it really is a big event in the city. So it's a it's a game that dates from the 16th century and used to be played by the aristocrats rather than the plebs. You know? <laughs> and it was played always originally in Piazza Santa Croce, which is a big, very big open piazza. And the piazza, which has got old flagstones, is covered with sand to, to make a pitch. And it's played between the four quarters of the city, which are all given a colour, so the Santa Spirito, Santa Maria Novella, Santo Croce, and San Giovanni. And each team has a colour. But the point about it is that it's extremely violent, really <laughs> violent. I mean, it's, a, it's a violent hybrid of soccer, rugby, and wrestling all combined. And it used to be literally no holds barred. So there'll be blood. I mean, you know, legend has it that somebody bit somebody's ear off. Often you get people, photos in the, in the newspaper the next day of bloody um, bare-chested because it's played bare-chested. They wear some of old medieval breeches, but they play, and they, they're enormous strapping men, you know, huge brutes. And the funny <laughs> thing is that they, they they all work in, you know, we all know them. So my my neighbourhood is Santo Spirito, and where our team is the Bianchi, the white team. And my butcher is one of them, and he's this enormous man called Nico. And he's huge, and he's tattooed all over him, his neck and his face. And, and you know, when he's a butcher, he's been quite, um, you know, docile but then if you got him on the football pitch and I've seen photos of him and he turns into this monstrous hulk <laughs> of a man you know so they're all these people who we all know and and they're our neighbors and and they work and we see them in the bars and so on and then they turn into brutes on the on the culture historical pitch and it's there's three matches uh, between the four teams and the final is always pay, played on the 24th of June in the evening and that's the feast of San Giovanni and he's the patron saint of Florence and then the winner is declared that evening and and you know the florentines really feel it quite um in a quite passionate way it's a bit like the palio in siena a lot of tourists think that these these things these festivals are just tourist numbers but they're not you know this is very much felt in the city and uh, the different areas of the city are strewn with uh, flags and their team's colors and, and stuff and you know 
everybody watches it or goes to it, watches it on TV. Uh, yeah, and there's lots of flag throwing and drumming and musicians and parades in the street beforehand and afterhand. So, and then in the evening, there's fireworks at, on San Giovanni's big firework display as well. So that's a fun thing to do. And you can um, you can buy as a visitor. You can either go in standing room round the pitch, or you can buy a seat in the in the stands to watch it. It sounds incredible. Yes. So, so there's an actual organised pitch. Is it eleven versus eleven? Or is... I think it's ele- Is it twelve? I'm not sure actually. Eleven or twelve? Okay. Yeah. So it's actually an organised pitch. And they, you know, Piazza Santa Croce for the whole uh, lead up. It's about three weeks in June leading up to the 24th. I think there are there are two matches played the previous weekends, and the pitch is is laid out, and they build the stands, and you know, the whole piazza is covered in sand. So it, you know, it lasts several weeks. The whole process from beginning to end. Yeah. That sounds so good. Yeah. It really reminds me of the. Um, do you know the Royal Shrovetide match in Ashbourne? No. Oh right. No. So in there's a medieval football match in uh-huh. Ashbourne in Derbyshire in England, and it's basically the whole town plays football. You have the uppers and the downers, the top of the village and the bottom of the village, and basically there's hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people for one football, and it gets. I think it gets quite brutal as well. And no rules. I mean, that's the thing about this culture game. There's really no rules. I think similar thing. I think the rule is you can't commit murder or manslaughter. I was about to say, that's about it. You can't commit murder. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's it's hardcore, close-up, violent, physical combat, basically. And every now and then it gets suspended. I mean, there's been a few years. It hasn't happened for, I think, 10 years, but there have been a few years when it's actually been suspended. Oh, really? Because the crowd's got too unruly or the players get too violent the year somebody bit somebody else's ear off there's pictures with blood you know the guy with blood streaming down his face oh my god is it lewis morris as far as i know it wasn't nico in my butcher shop but uh... (laughs) (laughs) so next up can you recommend a strange thing to eat or drink in florence the strangest thing to eat here which is a bit of a cult food is as well is lampredotto the fourth and last stomach of the cow. And um, I personally, I mean, it's, you know, people love it or they hate it. I don't eat it. I don't eat offal uh, very gladly, although every now and then you're forced into it being a restaurant reviewer. But um, this is a kind of raw liver-coloured thing that's kind of flabby and a bit slimy. And it's boiled. So this this bit of intestine is um, boiled in in a broth with onions and carrots and celery, you know, until it's tender. Mm-hmm. Then it's served either in a panino in a in a in a bun with salsa verde made of parsley and anchovy and caper and olive oil. Mm-hmm. I love the salsa verde bit. I'll have that in the bun, but without the labrador. Sometimes people eat it just in a little tray without the bun, so it's a little foil tray, uh, and they eat it just with the salsa. And it's it's traditional Florentine street food. Mm-hmm. It's served uh, traditionally from little little stalls, little mobile stalls, which set up in various uh, venues throughout the city. And Florentines will go there, um, you know, from any time from ten thirty or eleven in the morning for a for a snack. That feels early for stomach. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and the glass of Chianti that goes with it. Right? <laughs> so yeah, like traditionally, it's you know workers who've been up 
cleaning the streets since very early. They'll have their morning break or their lunchtime break. But it's become quite a, you know, sort of middle class thing to do as well. And here in Florence, they eat it either with um, tomato sauce that's stewed in tomato sauce and topped with Parmesan. Mm-hmm. Nice. Or literally boiled and just um, served with olive oil. I mean, very good olive oil, but, uh, you know. <laughs> so the quality of the olive oil can only do so much, right? Exactly. It's still tripe, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think with tomato and Parmesan, I'm sure it's quite nice, but boiled. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of this sort of slimy. Uh, but lots of people eat it, mm-hmm. um, you know, but not me. Fair enough. Is there something in particular about the fourth stomach? Is it less acidic or something? I, I don't, don't know. know. I think it must be diluted. You know, once it gets yeah. down to the fourth stomach, it's uh, probably the top stomach, the first stomach, I would imagine, is, is you know, the things work. have got diluted by the time they get to the bottom. <laughs> there's uh, a food truck, a famous food truck that sells it in the Mercato del Porcellino, which is the famous little square, market square in Florence, where there's a wild... Uh, a bronze wild boar that people go and touch on his snout. Oh, yes. And, and you throw money into the fountain, it means you'll be going back to Florence one day. And there's a food truck there, and there's various other ones around the city. There's one in Borgo San Frediano, uh, in Piazza del Tiratoia, which is very good. Um, and there's another one in Piazza Beccaria. But then if you, there's various restaurants that serve it as well. So if you want to eat it in a rather more civilized, you know, more relaxed way, there's a very good restaurant that specializes in offal called Il Magazzino, which is in the Santo Spirito area near Piazza Pitti. And that's particularly good because it has a very, very good wine list of exclusively Tuscan wines. So you can have your Lampredotto, your street food, but with a really good bottle of Chianti as well. Next up, how about a strange legend or slice of history in Florence? Okay, so I wanted to talk about the flood, the Florence flood that happened in 1966 on the 4th of November, because, you know, that's recent history. And although, you know, it's a generation away from where we are now, there are still people in good health in Florence who remember the flood. My partner remembers, he was, I think, eight or nine when it happened, and remembers waking up and everybody was screaming and yelling. It was in the middle of the night when the Arno overflowed. Um, And even now, when it rains a lot, although they have a barrier system in the higher reaches of the Arno now, in the Arno Valley, it's still, you know, when it rains a lot, the river rises to scary heights and everybody still remembers, you know, the flood. And so it's very much something that is part of Florentine life, you know, when the river rises. Mm-hmm. And as a tourist, as a visitor to the city, there are still markings on the buildings. The lower, the area of the city that's lowest lying is the Santa Croce neighborhood. And on, on the buildings on Piazza Santa Croce, the walls, there are still marks, several people high, you know, way over the top of my head, uh, which marks where the water level rose to on that night. And they say that three to four million books and manuscripts were destroyed completely. Tens of thousands of, you know, world-class artworks were damaged and they're still restoring them, you know, to this day. Um, and a lot of the museums have, you know, notes on in Santa Croce in the, in the church museum. There are notes on some of the, the artworks, you know, explaining that it was badly damaged in the flood and, and as a consequence is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an interesting slice of recent history that still is very much felt. Next up, how about any customs of visitors to Florence that might be perceived as strange by the locals? 
Well, the latest thing, and it's very much a topic, Searching for Italy, Stanley Tucci. He's done this sort of, it's a, a series of shows, travel and food shows about Italy because he's a huge Italophile and, you know, he has his Instagram account where he does cooking shows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which happened, I think, during COVID, didn't it? Now, I'm, I'm a fan of Stanley Tucci, so I don't have anything against him, but I, I hate what he's done for, for <laughs> us, you know, poor locals here in Florence because he, he highlighted in one of his uh, programs, which was about Florence, these um, little things that they call the wine windows. Mm -hmm. and they are little stone arches, only probably about 30 centimeters high, that are let into the walls of some of the Renaissance and medieval palazzi right next to their main, very grand entrances. So in, in the old days, in medieval times, uh, you used to be able to buy a little glass of wine. Any passerby could, could knock on the little wooden door. It would be opened and he'd throw a couple of coins inside and out would pop a hand with a glass of wine, you know, so they wouldn't have to come into the palazzo. It was just available for anybody who was walking down the street. And these, you know, there's quite a few palazzi, old palazzi in the center of the city that still have these arches, most of which have been cemented up and so on because they're just decoration and they're not used for anything. But during COVID, there was when you weren't allowed to go into any bars, a couple of people revived them and were selling drinks and it caught on. Mm -hmm. And now it's become a huge thing that tourists come and they've read about the wine windows and they, they think that they're buying an authentic experience, you know, by knocking on the wine windows. One uh, in a bar where I go regularly with a group of friends uh, for an aperitivo on a Friday evening. And he has a little bell outside his. So the tourists roll up and they ring the bell and the owner opens the door and hands them a glass of wine and then they pay through the nose like 10 euros wow. to a glass of, you know, in an elegant wine glass or a spritz or something like Campari spritz. And it always just makes us laugh. These people think they're having the authentic Florentine medieval experience and, you know, buying into a custom that's centuries old where actually it's just a tourist flap. Right. And the other thing that makes us laugh is the way that tourists turn up to Italy and they think it's because it's a hot country. There's always going to be sun. So they come in February and then in shorts and T-shirts <laughs> when the Florentines are still wearing their puffer jackets and uh, fur coats because a lot of the older women here still wear fur coats. And then last but not least, can you recommend a strange day trip from Florence? Okay, so one of the things that uh, is characteristic of Tuscany, which it boasts, is a, lots of thermal springs. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of the land here, and there's a lot of sort of underground volcanic activity, which, you know, we do have earthquakes here every now and then, little ones, but they happen. Mm -hmm. And so all the rumblings and so on below the surface, it means that there's a lot of hot water and steam and, and stuff rising from the ground. So there's an incredible incredible number of hot springs in Tuscany. And some of them have been uh, taken and developed into big thermal complexes and, you know, posh hotels with um, wonderful spas and all the rest. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's quite a few places where you can go and bathe in just the hot springs. You can jump jump into a river or uh, it's a thing that Florentines love to do is wallow, especially in the winter, in hot thermal waters. And um, there's various places you can go. The nearest one would the Monsumano Terme, which is on the way to Pisa, so due west of here. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a there's a grotta. You can buy a day entrance ticket um, into this grotta, and there you just sit and sweat in your dressing gown on long chairs. Um, I think it's, it's it's heated to forty degrees or something like that, and it's salt lined, so it's very good for you. You know, 
it's very good for the skin. Uh, there's other places that um, the Italians will go to um, to benefit their liver, depending on what the mineral content is and the characteristic of, of each of these hot springs. They can be good for your skin. They can be good for your liver. They can be good for various other um, complaints. And uh, so some of them are more thermal spas are, are more medicinal in their uh, outlook and others are more aesthetic. Um, one of the best places to go is Bagno Vignoni, which is about an hour and 20 minutes drive um, from Florence, actually near where I run my festival. And actually, it's a little village, a very pretty little village, which was originally built by the Romans. And it's still got, as its central piazza, the Roman bath in the middle of it, which is full of hot steaming water. And while you are no longer allowed to bathe in the central piazza, there's various places where you can do that and you can buy a day ticket uh, to a hotel called the Hotel Posto Marcucci, which has a big thermal pool mm-hmm. and it's set in the most beautiful countryside and you can just wallow in 37 degrees uh, hot water all day and take a picnic or have lunch in the hotel and then get back in. And it's a lovely, lovely thing to do uh, on a sunny, cold winter day when the steam rises from the pool and you can just sit in enjoy being in the middle of the country naked in a pool and you know having fun okay so that's the strange stuff done can you give me a few straight up recommendations for florence the things you think people shouldn't miss Obviously, there's all sorts of levels of this art and, you know, monuments and museums and so on. There's food and drink and, you know, all sorts of different things. They should definitely should not miss the experience of eating a bistecca la Fiorentina, which is a huge T-bone steak. Mm -hmm. Traditionally served rare, you must never, ever, ever ask for it to be well done because they'll just... If they don't throw you out of the restaurant, they'll certainly poo-poo it and not take any notice. <laughs> the quality of the meat is, is is fantastic. It's something that many, many restaurants serve now, and it's traditionally supposed to be three fingers thick. Oh, blimey. And it's literally just seared over olive wood, traditionally over olive wood on each side and served. Usually, you know, depending on how many people are sharing it, they'll serve a steak between four or a steak between five or six. So, you know, huge, huge pieces of meat. Mm-hmm. And very delicious and traditionally served with uh, white beans and maybe roast potatoes or whatever. So that's definitely something that should be eaten. And a good place to eat it is a, uh, is a trattoria called Cambi, which is south of the river uh, to the west of the Oltrabno uh, district. And it's a traditional rustic place, but the meat's really good. Excellent. So that's one thing. It's always fun, I think, to see a city from above, especially in Florence with the red tiled rooftops and so, so on. There's various places you can do that, but the best place at the top of the campanile the bell tower yes i remember going up there it's a beautiful view yeah it is incredible view you have to be non-claustrophobic because getting up there is i think 700 or something steps Mm -hmm. very narrow so you have to be up for it um but it just helps get a a perspective over the city you realize that the arno runs east to west you know cutting through the middle of the, the the city um a very lovely area to wander around is the area where i live the old trana which means literally beyond the arno Mm-hmm. which is a, a, a kind of boho chic, you know, neighborhood, Santo Spirito and San Frediano, where there's lots of independent shops and boutiques and really great restaurants and cafes and aperitivo places. And this uh, community of artisans, which I mentioned before, which um, is sadly a bit of a dying breed in the center of the city anyway, because rents are going up because mm-hmm. they're all 
know, everybody's taking back their property to rent as Airbnb, which is killing killing independent uh, businesses and, and workshops and so on. But there's still enough uh, in this area of the city. There's paper makers and furniture restorers and gilders and cabinet makers. And um, there is a bit of a new generation that is helping to keep the tradition alive, uh, which is which is nice to see. It's not all old folk, you know, fogies who are slowly dying off, but you know there are some young young artisans, especially shoemakers. These fantastic bespoke shoes. That's good. So that's not a dying art, unlike the monks. Exactly, exactly, because they're all old. Once they're dead, you know, they'll be gone. Mm. The, the problem with visiting Florence and and seeing the main, you know, the blockbusting sites, uh, Michelangelo's David, the Uffizi Gallery, the Duomo, is that unless you come in January or February, it's just so packed. So you absolutely must book ahead if you want to see those things. But I always encourage people to try and, you know, look further than that. I mean, if you've never been to Florence at all, it's fair enough that you want to see the Botticellis and so on. But yep. there's so much more. There's so many fabulous churches. There's so many wonderful museums like the, the Convent of San Marco with the, with the Fra Angelico frescoes, just extraordinary. And the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo, which is a small museum full of all the carvings that used to be on the facade of the Duomo. And there's some wonderful little chapels with Last Supper paintings. I mean, you just, you know, there's so much to see that involves, uh, that doesn't involve queuing mm -hmm. and doesn't involve, you know, just humongous crowds. Is there any reason people should visit Florence now or, you know, coming up in 2024? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I know for the first time ever, the Tour de France ah. is starting in Florence on 29th of June. So anybody who's a cycling fan, I have a feeling the city is going to be packed because I've just independently heard of several people who are coming for the grand depart mm -hmm. of the Tour de France. Well, if you're a sports fan, you can combine that with the football match, right? That was in... You could, you're right. 24th and the 29th of June. There you yes, go. you could. You could. <laughs> um, there's some interesting, uh, there's some restoration projects going on at the moment. You know, Florence churches are full of frescoes and the problem with frescoes, they're often very high up. So you can't really see them unless you take binoculars and they're often you know hard to hard to see but when they're being restored you get a chance to climb up scaffolding and be right up close and at the moment the the frescoes the famous frescoes of adam and eve being cast out of the garden by uh, masaccio are being uh, restored and the scaffolding up there so you can book to go and climb the scaffolding and see the frescoes literally you know up close. Wow. Which is fantastic. Yeah, you have to book ahead of time, but that's possible. So that's the frescoes by um, Masaccio and Masolino and, and Lippi mm -hmm. uh, are all uh, in that little little museum, the, the Cappella Brancacci. And then at the moment, there's also scaffolding up in the baptistry of the Duomo, where the Byzantine mosaics in the dome are being restored. And you can climb way up there. I was invited uh, when they presented it to the press, and it's way, way up. I mean, if you've got vertigo like I have, it was actually a nightmare coming down again. <laughs> but again, you can go right up to the roof of the baptistry and walk, walk around the edge on the scaffolding and see that 
up close. Wow, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, you've talked quite a lot about booking things in advance. How far in advance do you need to be booking this stuff? I think as far as, as far as, you fix it. I mean, at the last minute, I heard that this from my various friends who are tour guides here, and I've got several friends who work as tour guides. They told me that they were having problems booking last minute. And I think the system is often blocked by people who, you know, non-official tour companies mm-hmm. who sell tickets for the big galleries at inflated prices. So, you know, a company might buy up a block of 20, 20 tickets every day at 10 o'clock for the next three weeks, uh, which means that those times aren't available often for individuals who want to book. So I think the advice officially is to book in far, as far in advance as you possibly can. Right, okay. At least the Uffizi, the Academia, the Duomo and the Pitti Palace Museums. And our alternative is to actually, if you're here to look at art, you know, if that's one of the most important reasons for you to be here, is to buy a Friends of the Uffizi card because that for, um, I think it's 50 euros for a single card and 90 euros for a couple, it gives you unlimited entrance to the big museum. So the Uffizi, the Pitti Palace, the Duomo, and a couple of other smaller museums, which each of them cost 15 euros. Mm -hmm. Apart from being a way of getting in easily without having to queue with everybody else, they're actually, you know, a bargain in terms of cost. It will actually save you money in the end. Okay. There's another queue for the Friends of the Uffizi, and a lot of people have copped on to it. So it's not that you walk straight in, but you certainly don't have to wait three hours in the sun to get it. Fantastic. Okay, that's a great tip. And then more generally, is there a particular time of year you'd recommend? I know you said summer is kind of crazy. Summer, summer's crazy. I mean, summer can be one of the problems in the in the high summer, I July. You know, from late June, July, early August, is that the heat here is terrible. Mm-hmm. Florence is built in a in a hole surrounded by hills, so it's very very humid and very very hot in the summer. It can be really unpleasant, and we all know that places are getting hotter and hotter. So the last couple of summers have been really awful. Um, and then, you know, add to that the crowds and the fact that literally you cannot move on the streets in the centre of town. You're elbowing, elbowing your way across the bridges and so on. So, I mean, anybody who comes to see art should aim for January and February if they're not worried about the weather. Really, there's nobody here at the moment. It's fantastic. If you want to come because you want to hang out in sort of pavement cafes and eat lunch outside, you know, it needs to be warmer weather. Avoid Easter, avoid the May 1st bank holiday. But apart from that, May and halfway through June. And I think actually, I think October and early November absolutely beautiful times to be here mm-hmm. you know the worst of the crowds have gone it's usually very pleasant weather the colors are lovely it's all sort of glowing and uh, it's 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 got a nice feel to it because people are kind of relieved that the worst is over so finally to end on something strange what's the strangest sight you've seen elsewhere in the world I had to think about this quite carefully. And actually, I came back to Italy in the end Mm -hmm. because one of the strangest places I've ever been is Naples. I mean, Naples (laughs) is a very, very, very strange place. And one of the strangest things in Naples is the Cimitero delle Fontanelle. Uh It's a huge open vault, which is a burial chamber. And it's in the the Sanita district, which uh, until a couple of years ago was a real no-go place because it was violent and risky and really, 
you you couldn't have gone there. Now it's opened up and there's lots of B&Bs and people go and stay there now. But this uh, cemetery was um, a quarry for tough uh, volcanic stone, the stone that Naples was built with. Anyway, much of it was quarried from this place. And then it was closed down, uh, abandoned around the 1600s, something like that. Uh, and then the plague, there have been a number of really devastating plagues in Naples. And during the 1656 plague, much of, you know, most of the population was killed off mm-hmm. and people were dying at a rate of 1,000, 1,500 people were dying every day and they most of them were thrown into this open and then and then the the plague passed and then there were various other uh, epidemics and plagues over the the following centuries and they reckon at one point there were about eight million bodies in there wow eight million and this is in the middle of the city in the late 19th century, apparently the Comune, the, the administration decided that something had to be done about this. A, a group of people led by nuns and priests, some religious organization, managed to clean the place up, salvaged about 40,000 skulls, along with you know various bones and tibias and femurs, and, and, and they piled them all up against the walls and this place is a huge cavern you know so they piled just literally piled them all up stacked them all up against the walls and that's the way they were left in naples the cult of the dead is very strong and there was this tradition that started oh centuries ago when locals in order to uh, somehow deflect going to hell they would adopt skulls and the souls of the dead and would shower them with presents and they'd literally go to cemeteries choose a skull and take presents and, and um, drape them with necklaces and light candles beside them and they would each adopt a skull and it was a very strong tradition for a long time. Right. The Cimidero delle Fontanelle became full of these skulls that were adopted by people and you go in there and this incredibly eerie place incredibly eerie place, it's like a, a cathedral sort of sized dimension of a place carved out of rock and all these piles and piles of skulls and bones very weird very weird and we're out there we have it strange old florence thanks to nikki for all her suggestions if you want to know more about any of them they're now up on our website strangeoldworld.com along with links and a map Remember to check out Nikki's book, Cala de Volpe, links in the description. You'll also find links to her travel articles for the likes of The Telegraph and The Florentine. If you're planning to visit the city, I suggest diving in. There's some great stuff in there. Before I go, I promise to pick my favourite Florence oddity, and it's this, Galileo's finger. Head into the Galileo Museum beside the river and keep an eye out for a little glass egg. Inside here is the bony finger of the 16th century Tuscan polymath, It's a middle finger sticking straight up, which feels like the appropriate reaction to being laid to rest in a museum. Recently, Galileo's sweary finger has been joined by two others, his index finger and thumb. So we're now three-fifths of the way to a Galileo high five. Right, that'll do. I'm off for my Lampredotto brunch. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Strange Old World. The music is by William King and this was a Junior Productions production.